0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1338. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Homeschooling families, it's the middle of the academic year, and that's when a lot of families decide to ditch the curriculum they're using and try something better. Well, if you want to maintain your mental health and give your kids an outstanding education, then check out the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum. And when you use my link, you get $160 worth of free bonuses as well. My link is ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hey, everybody. It's Tom Woods. And in this episode, I'm reproducing an interview I did on a podcast called Something's Off with Andrew Heaton. Andrew Heaton has been a guest on this program, and he is a stand-up comedian, very funny guy, great guy. He's had a segment for a long time with Reason TV called Mostly Weekly. And right now, he's got a great gig over at The Blaze. Theblaze.com is the host of his podcast, which is Something's Off with Andrew Heaton. And he's just a great host. He's an interesting guy. He's a fun guy. He's a little bit more, shall we say, middle-of-the-road libertarian than I am. But he's such a charming and wonderful fellow that, well, I can overlook that. So we had a nice conversation. He wanted to talk about the development of the idea that society is not just a random series of events, but that there are certain regularities to it, that there's a sense in which it runs itself. It's self-regulating. And sometimes this is referred to as spontaneous order. I'm not a huge fan of that expression. I'm not quite sure why. There's something about it makes me crazy. But that's the general topic that we were unpacking, and we had a very good time doing it. So that's what you're about to hear right here. And if you like what you hear, check out Andrew's podcast over at TheBlaze.com. Or of course, you can just find it on iTunes. Just type in Something's Off, and Something's Off with Andrew Heaton will pop right up. Here we go. Tom, thank you for joining me. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Andrew.
1: Yeah. Uh, So um, I want to apologize to you and the listeners in advance in that uh, I think you are a walking encyclopedia of history, from what I can tell. I don't think I can catch up with you at any point. I've done my best for the material today, uh, but you're going to definitely outpace me. I I hope I can at least uh, um, stay abreast uh, based on kind of what I want to talk to you about, which is the Enlightenment and some of the things that came out of it. And I I want to begin by sharing a pet theory I have with you and then kind of unpacking it from there. Uh, I think that the natural tendency of mankind is to assume we need a person with a bullhorn shouting at us and organizing us to do things. And one of the most powerful things to come out of the Enlightenment was the concept of emergent order, which is the idea that something can be organized uh, or uh, w- with, without having a central organizer. you You can have order without an organizer, basically. And I think that we're actually seeing a kind of regression on behalf of a lot of our friends in the progressive movement, or specifically technocrats in Europe, who I think kind of want to have that old feudal structure. It's just that they want to swap out the inbred aristocrats and put in... Uh, academics, Uh, but they still want to have those leaders kind of micromanaging things and having a command economy. Uh, So your thoughts on that, and then we'll kind of go backwards from there.
0: I can understand why people might think this. It seems to make sense. I mean, there's, there's a way in which it even seems on first glance that a planned economy on the Soviet model to, you know, the unaided intellect may seem to be the best approach because wouldn't it be better to have a small committee running things, giving orders, coming up with plans, and figuring out who should produce what and where and what quantities. It seems like that we, we bring intelligence to bear on production. That should have a better, more orderly outcome than if we just said, "Hey, everybody, you just go out and do whatever you want to do." Which yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I can just, understand
1: you know, the I can understand the impetus behind that. Like we've we've now observed the Soviet Union and we've observed command economies. They don't tend to right. work very so well. So it turns
0: out it doesn't work out that way. Right. So so in other words, our first instinct that uh, maybe we just need people with bullhorns ordering everybody around. It turns out that's not the case. And that, in fact, when you do leave people free to decide what business they're going to enter and what product they're going to produce and how they're going to produce it and where it and in what quantities, it turns out when you leave people free to do that, you actually get the most extraordinary kind of order. And that really, that to me, that is the extraordinary development of the past few centuries. In, I mean, I think it's the most important intellectual advance I mean, I, that I can think of. And and it's
1: it's definitely a paradigm shift as well. It's not just like instead of having a king, we're going to have a parliament. It's not just swapping out who's in power. It it is a fundamental rethink of the nature of power itself.
0: The the idea that so much in society can run itself and that it does not need outside force. For example, uh, we can think about examples that we see in our daily lives, but we see them so often we're blind to them. So for instance, um, I've sometimes, along with my friend Bob Murphy, given the example of physics as a discipline, academic discipline. Now, there's nobody in charge of physics. There's no president of physics. Thank God. And yet physics proceeds unimpeded. It, 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 we have a wonderful discipline of physics, and we have different academics and, and, and writing in academic journals and having conferences, but there's no nobody running physics, and yet there it is. And nobody would say, boy, physics really, really needs a... Uh, kick in the rear end by a a good military dictator. It would never occur to us to think that
1: way. Yeah, we we, we need a a brigadier professor of physics to organize all of those physics professors to get in line and and, uh, research the correct things.
0: We, We need a military coup in physics. It would not occur to somebody to think this way, or even the English language itself. It wasn't that there was some guy standing under a tree one day, and he somehow barked out at everybody what the different words for the different objects were it developed spontaneously, again, with nobody in charge. And so then when you look around and you realize that, you know, right now, I'm I'm actually holding a pencil in my hand, taking some notes here. When you look at, as you know, a lot of libertarians know, the complexity of that pencil from the point of view of, think of everything you need to do just to chop down the wood for the pencil. Well, you have to have steel for the saw. And so that means you have to uh, you have to get into mining and and iron ore and the production of steel and then you need rubber for the tires to transport the steel and you need gasoline which means you have to drill for oil i mean when you and, and i haven't even gotten to the 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 rubber for the eraser the right. steel the paint and all this stuff you would think if we just looked at all the complicated inputs you'd think yeah, I think we're going to need a pencil czar ordering everybody <laughs> around, telling them what to do and when to do it, but yet we don't. P- p- we just p- pencil, them, pencil
1: czar does sound like a delightful Pixar movie. Like that could be some it, it, kind it, of back-to-school special of, I, I'm not sure what it would be, but it sounds fun.
0: We'd be a lot better off if the only czars were pencil czars. That, yeah. But, but well, the beautiful so, so thing about
1: it... Go ahead, go ahead and finish,
0: yeah. Well, 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 just to say that yet somehow we have this amazing result of this, this wonderful little device, and we don't have shortages of it. We don't have huge surpluses of it. We get them in just the right quantity at just the right time with all these people cooperating all over the world to produce all the stuff, and there's no bullhorn guy ordering them around.
1: Now, to to play devil's advocate for a moment, I think that my my progressive friends would probably not espouse that there should be a, a brigadier general of physics. However, they they would say that there ought to be a funding mechanism from the state to uh, go to, you know, basic uh, fundamental research and applied research and that kind of thing. Um, so where where would you place that in this kind of um, intellectual org chart of, you know, state-directed funding but not state-directed uh, state directed research uh, mandates?
0: Well, there are cases like, uh, in for example, if we give people welfare payments, uh, we give them the money and then they go out and buy what they need. But mm-hmm. in other cases, like with the schools, the government – gives the funding and the school itself. Mm -hmm. So in a case like this, they might say, well, we're willing to let private scientists do their thing, but they need the funding from the government. And it turns out that this is more myth than reality. Mm. When we actually look back at the history of government funding of science, it's actually not really that impressive a record. In the 19th century, the British were the undisputed scientific leaders of the world. Uh, I mean, they Of course, they pioneered with the Industrial Revolution. They had some of the uh, most world-renowned scientists. And yet the amount of government funding of science in Britain was literally zero and nothing. Whereas France and Germany had a lot of government funding of science, and they lagged considerably uh, behind. And what's happened in the 20th century is as the government has gotten involved, it's not that now there's more funding of science. It's that instead of people donating to it or or, – industrial sources of the, of the scientific work. It's just government funding, which has generally not been as much money as had been given before. And then also, most people have the wrong idea of where science comes from. They think that it's scientists working in lab coats, just piddling around trying to see what works and what doesn't, and that's where science comes from. Actually, the overwhelming majority of scientific progress comes from building on existing technology to improve it. And that tends to happen on the spot. Like, for example, the steam engine was not developed by men in lab coats looking for an invention. Mm-hmm. It, 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 to the contrary, it was people unhappy with existing technology who made constant adjustments. And then develop these new technologies. So a lot of it takes place kind of on the job, so to speak. So the idea that we need a huge amount of funding for so-called basic science is not true. Basic science contributes very, very little to scientific progress. And, and moreover, uh, Japan has very little uh, government funding of science. They generally they have uni- they have well some universities, but mainly industrial laboratories is where their scientific progress takes place. So a lot of this is the, the state wants us to think that without them we'd be backward. We'd all be worshiping Thor and we'd have no progress. (laughs) It does. That sounds
1: like a fun weekend, but, but, uh, but, but yeah, probably not the thing to shoot for,
0: but it turns, and there's a, there's a fantastic book on it. Um, uh, this this fellow named Terence Keeley wrote this book called The Economic Laws of Scientific Research, and he became like a pariah in the scientific community because they don't care what the truth of the matter is. They want their subsidies. Doggone it. I want my yeah, money. I, I think
1: really, really in any any category, in, in almost any private – or in, any any sector, generally speaking, if you criticize the flow of money coming in, it's going to be problematic. If If there were a – and I hope there never is one – if there were a federal department of podcasts that allotted money – to try and uh, incur I, I, I can't even bring myself to bring out the sentence because I think the, the results of it would be so horrid. Uh, but but if you were to try and cut that, there would be a lot of podcasters that would uh, all of a sudden rebel against it and probably strike out against anybody saying, you know, maybe this could sort itself out on its own.
0: Right. And and moreover, uh, we, we might add, as, as, we, as we would clearly see with a federal department of podcasts, there would be almost certainly some kind of political bias creeping into the funding.
1: I would assume and- so. That, that That's one of the things I find interesting when I talk to – there. there's this kind of – I can't even quite wrap my mind around it. I, I actually got into a conversation the other day on uh, on Facebook. Uh, a couple of my friends and I were going back and forth. One of my friends was talking about um, the BBC and what I thought of the BBC, which I, I like the BBC. I don't want to try and replicate that in the United States, though. And one of the things I pointed out was you know, you, you guys are aware that Donald Trump is the head of our government, right? Uh, and, and then the, the response from my progressive friends was like, well, we just need to not elect Republicans. And I, went, I I think if you're trying to design a political system in which you never lose, it's not a very good political system. That does not seem like a very robust model to, to accept.
0: Right, where every four years, everything you cherish could potentially be up for grabs. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really the best you can come up with? Yeah,
1: as opposed to, you know, get your, your podcast off of Patreon – not that much of a problem if if a new president comes in, as long as he or she's not messing with freedom of speech. Then then you can do whatever you need to, independent of that. I'll I'll, I'll add as well. I think in terms of the um the psychology here, uh, I find that um and I'm I'm guilty of this as well. But trying to look at things that could be handled by spontaneous order is is even harder than it is to just sort of. Uh, allow things to develop in that direction, and and what I mean by that, um, a an example that I've heard I think is great is if we lived in a world where there was a federal department of shoe distribution, where uh, everyone in America got their shoes from the federal government, uh, were you and I to come in and go, you know what? I think the private sector can completely handle this one. I think one hundred percent the 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 response would be we're monsters. We we don't think people deserve shoes. We don't think they need shoes. How can we possibly think? That uh, something so fundamental as shoe wear could be trusted to something so ephemeral as the private sector, when in reality, it's working fantastic right now. I, I don't know of anyone who thinks that lack of shoes is a significant problem in the United States, even for people in poverty.
0: Or, or they would come up with bizarre problems that the private sector would supposedly have, like maybe we would buy a pair of shoes and one would be longer than the other. But I suppose that's you know in principle that's possible. But why would a company do you, that? You know, it's it's like uh, we, we we couldn't have the private sector produce batteries. Why every company would have a different size battery for its product? <laughs> but everyone would hate that. So of course we wouldn't have that.
1: Well, and and then the the immediate counterexample with the shoes is like you can go to this might be anecdotal, but I I think it's correct. Like they're in in, in Soviet Russia and uh, maybe in China, they would have, you know, a factory that only made left shoes and another factory that only made right shoes. And one of the factories would just be more efficient. And as a result, they'd have more right shoes than left shoes. So occasionally, if you're in a shoe line, you would get two left shoes. Uh, and uh, that you're less likely to see that kind of thing in a market economy, where right. uh, the the people uh, selling the shoes are a lot more aware of of the demand for them than a distant command and control bureaucrat.
0: Well, ain't that ain't that so? so it turns out that when I try to come up with crazy stories. They've actually occurred yes. <laughs> in the actual history of economic yeah.
1: planning well, and and so that brings me to the history of it because i I, I try and get into um the mindset of sort of pre-enlightenment um people uh, periodically, because I, I there's so many things that we take for granted as being normal. and uh, and I'm not sure whether they're innate or whether they're societal. Uh, but but they to if we go pre-enlightenment um the the thinking is very different. Um, so, Sticking with emergent order for the moment, I'm I'm curious. Do you think the this this man with a bullhorn model? Do you think that's just inertia that we're fighting, or do you think that's actually an innate psychological tendency that is always going to be
0: there? I don't know if it's innate, but I I do know that it's it. What what you and I are saying in this episode is counterintuitive. Yeah. Because as I say, your natural inclination is to think. That why Put we an need expert ad- in charge.
1: Find the smartest yeah, person right, exactly. and put them in control of it. We need to apply it.
0: human intelligence to this problem. We can't just have people running around doing whatever they want. And yet in case after case, that's precisely what yields you amazing outcomes. So I think it's – and I think also most people don't sit around pondering big issues like this. They yeah. just go with what their gut tells them, which is frankly why we have so many people who have strong opinions on economic matters – who really don't understand anything involved at all?
1: The, uh, um someone once said that the amount of people that think they understand something because they've heard of it is staggering. And yeah. I I am I'm I very firmly hold that opinion. I've I've met a lot of people that they they read about something one time in one article that they saw on The Guardian, and that is sufficient information for them, and they are an expert on it now. Um so who 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 kind of flips the 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 lid on on spontaneous order? I mean, I, I think of Hayek as kind of the patron saint of it, or the the apatheosis of emergent order, but he's, he's later in the game. I mean, he's 20th century. So who kind of kicks this off in the, in the enlightenment of maybe we don't need someone in charge?
0: Well, I'm going to go even back a little bit before that. And I'm going to talk about people who have never been mentioned in the history of podcasting. Can Ever. I, Ever.
1: Can, no I can I, can I, can I, I'm going to venture just, to, and if, if I get it, I, I want a very firm handshake from you the next time we escape a room.
0: Okay, I think, I know, I, think you, I know you know it. Okay, so what do you think I'm going to say?
1: I think you're going to bring up uh, the, the Chinese philosopher, Shuang Zi.
0: Oh no, but I'll still shake your thank hand. Thank you. I appreciate you're that, a good Tom. man.
1: Thank you. I, I appreciate <laughs> that. I just, I just get, I get bonus points for trying. I, uh, I, or how I, about I'll
0: just well, next time I see, you, I'll just give you a thumbs up. Thank you. I'll, I'll take
1: that. I'll <laughs> take that. Well, because, because you're, you're, are you a Rothbardian or you're, you're a Rothbard? I fan? am. Okay. But did you
0: read his history of economic thought? Is that where you were getting at? Part
1: of it. I've, I've not read it in its entirety, but I, I know that he sort of identified Shuangzi, who, who for those listening, I'm utterly unfamiliar with Shuangzi. I know that he was sort of a Confucianism, which was the dominant form of thought in China for a very long time, which was a very, very orderly, um, inertia, uh, protocol-based philosophy. He was sort of an anti-Confucius, and he was quoted as saying, good order results spontaneously when things are let alone. So Rothbard sort of saw him as the first recorded yeah. proponent. Uh, however, I think we can look at China today and say there are not a lot of statues of Shuangzi dotting no, the horizon. Right. Uh, emergent order is not a concept. I, I think I think the Chinese regime has made great leaps. Uh, After the great leap forward, Uh, they have made some great leaps, but it's still incredibly tethered to this. We're going to allow economic freedom insofar as it does not remotely frighten the regime at all one bit. Um, So they've they've come along, but they're still hardcore statists to their core.
0: I was thinking in terms of people in the Western tradition. So, so you definitely get a you get a point for that because I, I would not have thought of that example. Uh, what I want to start start with is
1: well, and, and for the right since since I did explicitly invite you on to to talk about the Enlightenment, I, I am outside of the bounds of the the conversation. So, oh
0: well, yeah. that's true. Yeah, that's why I was looking in terms of the West because of the Enlightenment. So, what I'm thinking about is is this: the very fact that today. We have now. It's true there are a lot of screwy economists, right? I mean, sometimes the last place you want to go. I'd, I'd say at least a around.
1: dozen right now running around.
0: Yeah, exactly. To understand what's going on is is an economist with half these people, but at least in principle, the idea behind economics is that society works according to some kind of cause and effect relationship. Yeah. It's not people, all just people respond
1: random. to incentives. There there is some kind of system in place. Yeah.
0: There's some connection between, you know, prices and how much money is in the economy. I mean, you know, there are cause and effect. And it was the people who first began to grope toward that idea that maybe there's not just cause and effect in the hard sciences, you know, like uh, how uh, a magnifying glass works or something, but it's also in society there are cause and effect. And these are people nobody's ever heard of. They're called the Spanish Scholastics. Oh, the, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm broadsided. I am centuries.
1: utterly unfamiliar. The Spanish Scholastics. And when are they writing?
0: Uh, uh, 15th and 16th okay. centuries. They're, they're mainly at the University of Salamanca in Spain. And one of the things they're trying to do is make sense of the fact that all the explorers, or, or some of the explorers anyway, from Europe are coming back from the New World with all these precious metals. And these precious metals, all of a sudden now, they're noting that prices in Europe are going way up. Well, wait a minute. Now they figured out, wait a minute, there's a connection here. No wonder prices are going way up. There's way more money now. And the money, the more money there is, the higher the prices are going to be, you know, than they would have been otherwise. So they they started to put cause and effect together. Okay, we got a big, big boon in terms of precious metals. and But then all of a sudden we notice the price we have to pay for everything just went up. Maybe there's a connection. So the idea of economics as being maybe a study in its own right starts to develop from that insight from those people which and is also, also- a, a,
1: an absolutely huge thing to begin because you think about if you're let's let's say you're in 13th century England you might be on the privy council and, and literally have no idea why anything's going on. Like, I, I imagine they, they must have had some concept of, of, or some opinion on price fixing, because that's happened since Roman times, at least, where, you know, the government will come in and dictate the price of bread. So there, there probably were opinions, but uh, I don't know that people were looking at this from a meta perspective of, you know, we, we pull this lever and other things happen.
0: Right, exactly. And that's what they started to grope toward. And that's then what the Enlightenment builds on. Uh, and that's that's probably the best part of the Enlightenment was uh, an understanding among a lot of people that economics tells us a certain number of things about how society works. And you can shake your fist at these things if you want to, but that would be like shaking your fist at the law of gravity. So in yeah. other words, if you think some consumer good is too expensive, so you think the solution to that is to have the government force the price down, you're welcome to do that. But the result will be fewer people will supply that product and more people will demand it, which means there'll be shortages. Which, I th- So I in think other words, the, there's cause and effect.
1: Yeah, my the, the main thing, like I'm not – I don't really view myself as an evangelical in terms of my my political and economic beliefs. But if there's one concept economically that I could get across the board, it would just be the idea that there's consequences to whatever you do and many of them are unintended. Because I – particularly right now, I think we're in a period of, of sort of uh, high-throttle gut – uh, legislating from the gut, which is never good. Uh, and, uh, and the amount of, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, okay. If we run out of money, we'll just print more money. Uh, okay. Well, um, yeah. you know, there, there, there's, you, you can do that. However, it's not going to be in a vacuum. There are going to be, uh, responses from that. So, okay. So well, you, you, have you've, you've opened up a, a new, uh, a new rabbit hole for me to go down, which is the, uh, 15th and 16th century Solomon, uh, scholastics. And are they? because you say scholastics, so or are these are these Jesuits, or these uh, are these professors, are they priests? What's what's their what? what are they doing?
0: Uh, generally, they are. Uh, some are Jesuits, some are Dominicans. Okay, but they are, they're basically following in the tradition of of Thomas Aquinas. They're mm-hmm. they're better on economics than Thomas Aquinas was, uh, and and they generally uh, come down on the f- on the side of a free market. By the way, they generally believe in a free price system. Really, they they believe in a free, you know wages to be determined by the market. Uh, they have pretty sound opinions on just about everything but the the key insight that you had about um you know that that these days it's like we're just legislating from the hip and this this sounds like it's a good idea so let's just go ahead and do it without thinking that there might be consequences of it well just uh within the last 24 to 48 hours or i don't know this week sometime elizabeth warren came out saying she wants a wealth tax on everybody right yeah and, and well, she's and, got to well, catch well, up
1: with kamala harris and, and and catch up with uh alexandria ocasio-cortez so she she came up with a different plan yeah
0: right and when i say on everybody i, I mean on the, on the super wealthy and and there's no it's not even like they say now listen we know this will have some negative consequences, but we feel confident that the positive results will outweigh the negative. We're not even told there are any negative consequences. Why, well, if we want money, we'll just take it from these people because yeah. they're the ones who have it. There's no sense of well, do the rich play any role whatsoever in the economy that might be disrupted by this, or are they all just sitting around on yachts, you know, smoking cigarettes made out of hundred dollar bills, exactly? Which is their view of what the rich.
1: Did. Or, or, or the the uh, there's just kind of a th- I have to explain this all the time of. Uh, you know, money, like there's no, there's no, um, there's no Scrooge McDuck. Rich people don't have piles of cash sitting in their basement. They're investing them in things. Uh, all of that money is doing something. It's not just sitting there. Uh, even, even if they're parking it in a bank account, the bank is loaning it out to somebody else. So the, the right. money itself is active. And I, with, with, with things like that, I'm not, um I, I don't have a Grover Norquist mentality of just all taxes are always bad. There's never a situation where it would be, um, a a practical solution. But my, my concern is you do need to have like a specific thing you're wanting to fund. So if it's, listen, I'm really worried about the deficit, which I am. And I'm really worried about the national debt, which I am. We, we might have to like, you know, do something British where what they did a few years ago was we're going to cut, uh, two pounds for every uh, pound of tax raised. It's like, all right, that's, I, I, I see where you're coming from. If, if the logic is just inequality is bad, let's punish successful people. I do not think that is a very good, uh, ideological pillar to build an economy on.
0: Yeah, no kidding, especially because there's no sense that that the rich contribute anything and that that money, as you say, goes to fund the very things that improve our standard of living, which is investment in capital goods that make our production process more productive. We can produce more stuff. So that puts downward pressure on the prices of things. Uh, we need money to maintain our productive structure we need to maintain all the machines and everything we do is to use to produce things if all we did was take money from rich people and just blow it you know at the casino or <laughs> or 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 spend it on a hamburger or whatever and that's all we did we would immediately well not immediately but pretty darn quickly revert to a hand to mouth existence you need big money just to just to maintain the capital structure we have right now. But there's no sense that they play any role. Even Paul Krugman, who's supposed to be a professional economist, a few weeks ago in the New York Times, had a column saying, look, when we come up with tax policy, we should never, I'm not making this up, I'm not putting words in his mouth, we should never consider the interests of the rich. That is never relevant. The only reason we don't want to punish the rich so much that they stop working is that if they stop working, we can't keep taxing them. Now, that's just astonishing to me. Because that, that is the, the only value
1: of rich people is being built for taxes. That's the only, that's right. the only, Listen, only good not that they provide. People.
0: Yeah, they're not people. They're, they, they do some kind of magical thing. We don't know what it is that they're doing all day, but whatever it is, they deserve to be fleeced.
1: Well, I, I think that that's another um, important economic distinction uh, that I, I find is that wh- whether you view wealth as a sort of automatic process that falls from the sky, in which case wealthy people are just more cunning at being able to grab it. It's sort of like if, if dollars are falling from the sky and they've just got bigger nets, then they don't deserve that much wealth. Uh, if if you have a, a more ground up approach, as you and I do, of wealth is created, in that case, then it's it's you know obviously rent seeking is bad, but if you're if you're generating value and creating wealth, if you start punishing that, you're you're you know attacking the golden goose uh, by virtue of of having this emotional response to accumulation of wealth.
0: And not to mention uh, another. Uh, th- I guess uh, another ground on which they uh, complain is that they believe that m- even just regular millionaires uh, pr- must have in- must have inherited this money or a lot of their money from their families. But eighty percent of American millionaires are first generation rich. Eighty yeah. percent.
1: We we actually so have great from- great social mobility within the super rich, uh, and then uh, they the uh Gene Epstein it talks about this a fair amount as well that these sort of the the dynasties we think of we can name two or three in America but in reality they don't tend to hold on to wealth uh or the that, that accumulation of wealth tends to be about three generations then it's dissipated uh and you can point to people like like I think um uh, Bill Gates has done phenomenal things for all of mankind uh both as a philanthropist and just by all of the work he did putting Microsoft together thank you uh and uh he's planning on giving away I think it like 90 percent of his wealth before he dies and he's actually got a, a ton of other rich guys to sign on to this george lucas warren buffett all of these people who have voluntarily without the state coming in and, and putting a bayonet in their their back uh decided that they've got plenty of money and they want to give it away before they go so i i don't yeah that sort of fear of a nascent american aristocracy i i really think is misfounded
0: uh be- we we might add the same thing of course these same kinds of complaints were made against the so-called robber barons ah yes and and of course, you know, we could get into a whole conversation with that. But I mean, at least a good chunk of those people made their money, not because they got government privileges, but because they produced goods that Americans needed super cheaply. Yeah. Uh, like, like Cornelius Vanderbilt was able to get you from one place to another uh, for a fare that people could actually afford. Or, yeah, he, would, r- he, r- or r- he would let you go for free and, and just hope that you'd buy food on his ship. Or you didn't have to... You didn't have to go to bed early because you couldn't afford whale oil. Right. I was about
1: to say Rockefeller got rich selling not whale oil to the average American so that, you know, folks like me who are, you know, middle class, folks like like most of the people we know could just, you know, read at night and And, and not have to pay a ton of money killing a whale like all the rich people. He was such a
0: stickler. He was such a stickler about waste that he took the byproduct of refined oil and he made 300 different products out of that. So, so, but, but, but the reason I bring them up is that with the exception he, owned, of he, Vander... he owned a
1: top hat. He needs to go down. That's how that works. Uh, that's <laughs> true.
0: That's true. But, it, but, um, with the exception of Vanderbilt, generally these people gave away almost their entire fortunes yeah. um, as, as they, as they, a- a-
1: a- Andrew Carnegie, uh, I, th- I think he like he left some amount for his kids, but he did not, um, want to create, in fact, Andrew Carnegie, I, I, I wouldn't visited his birthplace when I was in Scotland a couple of years ago. Uh, and he was offered, I think, knighthood and things like that. And he really, he, he did not, li- he turned them all down. Uh, I think he was he was offered like a dukedom or something. And he he just he did not like the idea of unearned uh, titles and wealth. Um, he was sort of polite to the queen, but he didn't really like the idea of a monarchy uh, and gave away a ton of it. Uh, I do want to just very quickly because I didn't read the Paul Krugman article. Um, I uh, I don't know the, the full scope of what he was saying. I can understand where and I would agree with. Uh, when, when looking at an economic policy, I would be more concerned with the welfare of the poorest people in the country than I am with the the, the top people in the country. Yeah. So we, we see going that route of, um, you know, we our our emphasis should be on helping the poor rather than helping the rich. Or was it just the rich are only here to produce taxes?
0: Well, it was it, it was generally that since the, it, it doesn't make that much difference to the rich if you take some of their money away, they can still do all their fun frivolous things, but it makes a huge difference to the poor person. If you give that person money, he was thinking in terms of redistribution. Now, the trouble – I mean there are are a number of problems with that. But the the, the key one is if if we are going to sit there and complain about being – you know, about the 1% and these are terrible people, the problem is if we look at the whole world, Americans are overwhelmingly in the 1% of the whole world. I mean you barely have to earn not even 50 grand and you're in the 1% (laughs) of the whole world. So do you – by – extension think that the rest of the world should have a moral claim on everything you have because you have more than 99 percent well all of a sudden it's oh well that's different yeah i know it's different because now you have to contribute so it's it's something it's easy when it's those terrible rich people but when you are called to contribute something well that's that's totally different they don't live in our country as if that's morally relevant ah, if yes, we're talking yeah. about morality yeah. what difference should that make they don't i actually made a youtube video the question Bernie supporters refuse to answer, and they hem and haw and they dance all around it. I, because I want to know why don't you have to divest yourself of all your excess things and ship them around the world?
1: No yeah. answer. Uh, or you know, and I'll say like I've got a few uh, a few friends in New York who are uh, progressive, and and I, I will add that they they're they're very much into volunteering and they they donate to charity, and I think that's fantastic. I have great respect for them. Uh, where where I get um, angry is if um, the the distinction is. Uh, I am too busy saving up money for my trip to Italy, so I can't donate. Uh, but I do want to tax other people who aren't me uh, to to fund the programs that I need to be, I, I believe, need to be taxed. I, I You need to have some skin in the game for me to really take your argument seriously, unless you truly are impoverished and just can't do it, but are engaging in that thought process. So, I uh, hey. hold on, before we, we go down, because I think you and I could get into a a, a, a thought loop of, of just agreeing with each other violently <laughs> okay. uh, for a while. I want to jump forward. Uh, so, uh I'm going, to, I'm going to toss out three philosophers because I, I do want to touch on social contract theory. I, I, I realize it's adjacent to emergent order, but I do kind of—I I feel like they're kind of the vanguard of the Enlightenment, from from what I can tell. Um, Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau. The question I'm going to pose to you is: Mary, Bob, Kill?
0: <laughs> let's see. Mary, Bob, um, Kill?
1: Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau.
0: All right. Let's see. Uh, well, I guess Mary would be Locke. And kill would be Rousseau, and the uh-huh. other one would be Hobbes.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that, that, would, that would be my and, I, and we'll define we'll define in this weird time traveling scenario. Bop would be I don't want that to be the preeminent philosopher, but there are a couple of good ideas that are worth looking at. And with Hobbes, I don't think Hobbes gets enough credit. To be honest with you, I've kind of I'm not a Hobbesian, and I don't um, I, I look at Hobbes, and he he is this sort of gloomy pessimist but more more disturbingly he wants the government to rely on terror from what i can tell he he views the essence of government as terror and in that capacity i think is very open and honest about it i don't like that what i do like about hobbes is he seems to be the first kind of uh from what i can tell the first person to espouse the idea that there's a difference between the state and civil society which is an incredibly powerful distinction to make and gets really built on by subsequent thinkers
0: the trouble though with Hobbes that uh, – I mean everybody will can easily point out troubles with him as, as, as uh, indeed you have. But before you get to Hobbes, like in actual European history, society is extremely variegated. That is to say you have all these different groupings. You have universities that have rights and privileges that can't be uh, restricted. You have guilds. Uh, of laborers that have their own rights and privileges. You have cities with rights and privileges. You have all these different kinds of groupings. And Hobbes's view is that really, if you have groupings like that, any liberties and rights that they have, they have uh, at the permission of the state, because the state has to be the primary source of everything. If we can't have an imperium in imperio, that is to say, we can't have independent power centers within the state. The state has to be Infallible hmm. and able to impose its will on any person or group. So yeah, we might say, for, as a practical matter, we'll let you have these certain liberties. But if we need to cancel them tomorrow, we'll do that. Right. Because well, the, he, so he, that's he's, the problem.
1: He's coming out of. I, I guess he's sort of at his peak. Uh, he, he, he's he's living through the English Civil War.
0: Right, and, and that's the worst horror to him. Right, right.
1: and so he views. I, I think. I think the synopsis for for. I, I thought about this a lot last night in preparation for this interview. Uh, I think. Uh, Thomas Hobbes, his view of of a lack of power is the purge. If you've seen the movie The Purge, that's what Thomas Hobbes thinks the natural state of mankind is absent a very strong state to intervene. He thinks it is literal uh, anarchy in the streets, bloodshed, people wearing weird rabbit masks, killing their neighbors, things like that. And so you have to have a uh, an all powerful state to step in because he views order and security as the paramount virtue. Uh, and and liberty and freedom is sort of secondary because you're not going to have life without the order and security.
0: Right. And of course the idea that maybe order and security could come about in some way through liberty and not in yeah. spite of it is not, you know, it's not something that's going to occur to somebody, let's say, at, at that particular moment in history.
1: Yeah, I, um, I, it, it's unlikely. And again, the, the, the thought process, because then when we, when we jump to Locke, who, who I am definitely a Lockean, or at least more, more Lockean than I am Rousseau or, or Hobbes, um Locke is fighting with who like robert fulner or no uh, Ful- filmer Fulmer? filmer filmer yeah, yeah. And, and robert filmer who I, I think is kind of uh I, I listened to one of your podcasts tom where where he was dismissed by your guest as a uh, um the 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 village idiot of uh, of, of, oh, of filmer of yeah philosophers <laughs> right. at the time filmer but he but basically he was uh, i think emblematic of the thought process going on in england and throughout most of europe which is uh god himself has instituted the monarchy and you can you can see this because um, you know, Adam was created by God and he was given dominion over the uh, the animals and everything else. And so the monarchy is just this this natural extension of that. And Locke comes in and goes, nope, that's hogwash. Uh, we're going to use reason. Um, and uh, uh, he's much more cooperative than Hobbes. Uh, and uh, I, I he certainly I, I, would, would he be in the he's kind of pre spontaneous order to get back to that. I don't think that's really in, in the, the British zeitgeist at that time. Right.
0: Uh, probably not, but he is never, nevertheless saying things that are going to be helpful for the future. Like, for example, in the Hobbesian way of looking at the world, before there's a state, there really are no rights because, in his view, they're you know there's they're unenforceable. So they, there really is there is no there's not even a right and wrong really in, t- yeah. in, in the pre-political world. In fact, according, according to Hobbes,
1: you, you you are you are morally right to do whatever you need to d- to defend yourself in a stateless environment. If right. if, Whereas, if you if you need to go kill your neighbor with a pitchfork, there's there's really nothing wrong with that because the only responsibility you have is to survive in that world.
0: Exactly. Again, so the purge. Uh, uh, Locke's going to look at things differently. That, that you have natural rights in a pre-political state of nature, and the reason that you create the state is that without the state, you enjoy those rights only precariously, and with the state. You can enjoy them with greater security. That, that's the way he thinks, right? So now, he, then we he can, might you know,
1: be he might be more in line with a minarchist today. Of you want a state, but you want it to be sort of a night watchman type phenomenon, where it's protecting property rights and it's protecting you from violence, but it's not uh, otherwise all powerful.
0: That that seems to be more or less it. And and a good number of Locke scholars have come to that conclusion. There's a great book on on Locke that really goes deeply into his thought, and it's called "On the Edge of Anarchy." That that's how anti-state Locke is. He's not saying that there's no role for the state, but it's a it's a minimal role, right? And uh, I mean, Locke's still going to run into some trouble because he he does want the idea that everybody consents to be ruled by the state, and he realizes it's not practically possible to secure the consent of every single person. So he does have to go down the road of well. They tacitly consent yeah. because you know that's that sort of thing. He, well, but he's still, he's a still a great all, the, all of the
1: him and Hobbes and and uh, Rousseau. There's this weird like fixation that the British have, and I, I guess Rousseau is French, have on the idea of social contract, which I, I think is a it's it's an interesting and, and valuable mental exercise. But if you're actually trying to um, presuppose that it happened at some point, which I don't think any of them actually think anyone sat down. Uh, And and forged a social contract, maybe, you know, maybe Runnymede or something was, but um, you have like David Hume come in later and go, nope, this is just nonsense. Don't even bother thinking about it.
0: Well, and, and you know, things are so much we can talk about David Hume also, but we we still have to get to Rousseau.
1: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, So, yeah. Tell me. Okay. So we've got Hobbes is we're living in the purge and you need Leviathan, which uh, this is a quick question. and I feel stupid asking this. What is a Leviathan? I keep saying this everywhere. I, I only know it in connection with Hobbes. I think I've read about it in the Bible but I don't know what it is.
0: Well, it's, it was, they used it because the image was a, of it as this great seat of this great monster. In fact, you can see it on the cover of most editions of, of, of Leviathan. And so the, this is the term that's kind of, it's, is not isn't, it, isn't it kind of appropriate then that we would use it uh, to refer, to refer to the state, but that's, that's the image that so that,
1: that is the spirit animal that he wanted for the, the uh, British I, I, government? That <laughs> would be like if I, if, if, if a modern Hobbes would be like, he would write the book and call it Cthulhu and say we, we need a giant <laughs> sea monster to protect us from other tinier sea monsters?
0: I, I, I suppose so. I mean, I, I, that's all I remember from my old uh, college days. I hadn't thought about it since.
1: Okay. Well, so, so Hobbes, he, Hobbes is living in the Purge, uh, Summon Cthulhu to protect us. You've got Locke, who's much more about you know human beings are innately cooperative. We we need the state to secure our liberties and our life, but beyond that, we don't really need it. How does Rousseau factor into this?
0: All right. So the idea that we we get from um, like I will say quick thing <coughs> about David Hume because it, it helps to understand yeah. Rousseau. David Hume's view about property and justice. Uh, is that not that one wise lawgiver showed up and told everybody, all right, we're all going to have private property and here's how it's going to work. Yeah. Hume imagined that it it too emerged spontaneously as people just figured out on their own, we'd all be a lot safer if everybody kind of like had his own little domain and we all understood that we can't invade anybody else's. We'll all be better off if everybody mutually recognizes this. So he okay. thinks that developed uh, – like that. So he, Whereas, so he, he,
1: he gleans a sort of spontaneous order of property rights.
0: Yes, exactly. Okay. That's, that's how he sees it occurring. Uh, in the same way that Mises would look von L- 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 Mises in the 20th century would say that money came about that way, that, yeah, you, the government has an involvement later, but initially people didn't need to be told that money would make their lives better. They figured it out, you mm-hmm. know? And So likewise yeah. with property, they figured it out. Whereas Rousseau kind of thinks of property as a trick That uh, wily and wicked people play on the public. Okay. Uh, In because he says, of course, that the uh, the beginning of all conflict occurred when the first person stood on on some ground and said, "This is mine."
1: But the reality is, I kind of doubt that. So our species is what three hundred thousand years old. We've been we've been sedentary for maybe twelve thousand years of it, perhaps twenty thousand years of it. I'm pretty sure there was a lot of violence going on pre twenty thousand years ago. We we were killing each other with sticks. Yeah.
0: But he, but honestly, he thinks these are wicked conventions that have uh, been introduced into human society that have deprived mankind of its natural innocence. And so in other words, we, we've been corrupted by institutions, that we're naturally good, but we've been corrupted by institutions uh, like property. But of course, from, from our point of view, property is what makes peace possible because what, what Hume pointed out even you know, hundreds of years <laughs> ago – was that what we face is two problems uh, in society number one is scarcity there we have more desires than we have things you know I, I mean like we can there are only so many berries but yet we'd all like to have a full belly full of them mm-hmm. um, you know there are only so many cruise ships but we'd all like to go sailing on one. So there's scarcity we have to figure out who gets what or we're all going to be fighting about it. And secondly, there's the fact that human beings hearts, Extend only so far. We don't have an equal love for somebody on the other end of the world that we have for our own children. Mm-hmm. We have to factor these two facts into our minds, and the result of, of realizing these things about us is that we need to have property titles because then that solves the problem of, of of scarcity. That you know, we all want to do X, but there's only three X's and five of us. We have to figure out, okay, well, who's going to have what, and how are they going to acquire it? We have to have rules to settle this, and likewise. Um, the fact that I don't necessarily feel for you know somebody 500 miles away I've never met as I feel for my own children all right well we're going to have to have property you know so that I can work and acquire property for myself and my kids can have it I'll, I'll actually want to do the work if I know where the proceeds are going we have to introduce these institutions because th- this is the nature of mankind he said and but this is the opposite for Rousseau he thinks that these institutions pervert the naturally uh, good and generous nature of mankind. Now, it's, easy, uh, it's, it's funny for him to say that because he had at least five children and he gave them up to a foundling asylum where they were just going to be working and, <laughs> really? you know, for the rest of their lives. Oh. And he's all tears and pity for mankind. But when it comes to actual human beings in his life, he was an SOB.
1: Well, and I think that, I mean that you, you've drawn the what, what strikes me as the biggest distinction between Locke and Rousseau. Locke views history as a kind of pit that we've climbed out of and that we need to come, we, we, we need to embrace the right systems to encourage that further flourishing. Whereas Rousseau sees it as this kind, I guess he's a romantic or he's a proto-romantic. He, he sees a, a glorious or at least more emotionally fulfilling past that we have forsaken and we need to get back to that. And we're going to get back to that by tearing down all of the artificial scaffolding that we've erected.
0: Right. And, and that can be, uh, and, and that kind of thing in the hands of the state, you know, where is, is frankly, where some of the worst aspects of the French revolution come from the idea that we're going to decide which aspects of society are stupid and backward and need to be removed. Now, sometimes there are stupid and backward things in society that need Mm -hmm. to be removed, but the idea that, and and that's going to mean that we have to execute 50,000 of you because you're too stupid and you're too stuck to the old and backward views. uh, This becomes a bit of a problem. So, so he's, he's willing to, or, or likewise, he says that what what the legislator needs to do is to somehow discern the general will. But the general will is not the sum of individual wills. It's it, it, And it's something that the legislator will intuit and then force on the population. And if anybody objects, well, he must be crazy because – Uh, it's the general will. It's what he himself ought to want. I mean, it's just every totalitarian permission. This
1: is very Napoleonic too, right? Because Napoleon, who becomes emperor of the French, he views himself, at least in his, in how he describes it, Napoleon views himself not as a royalist, but rather as the, the physical embodiment of the French revolution. The, The French, all of the sentiments of the French revolution have come together in him. And therefore he has picked up the crown of France that he found in the gutter with a sword and is now living it and i i see traces of this i see this a lot in populism where you know if, if you uh, i you know i i whenever people start talking about what the people want i'm like well i'm i'm one of the people and you may not speak for me uh, the president very rarely speaks for me bernie sanders very rarely speaks for me and there's this kind of idea that uh, you know there's this huge block of people and i am their 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 spiritual uh, right. their spiritual yeah. spokesman and i'm like exactly. well i didn't, I didn't sign yeah. up to be a part of that
0: No, that's right. And in fact, that really is, that really is the core of fascism is the idea of the leader as the spiritual embodiment of the will of the people. And he's going to lead them into their glorious new future, regardless of the obstacles. And there is, it is worth noting in American history that all the way back in the uh, 1820s, when, when uh, Andrew Jackson was running for president, he portrayed himself as being the, you know, the spokesman of the, you know, the representative of the American people. Mm-hmm. And today that doesn't seem like anything unusual because every president says, you know, I, I'm the spokesman right. of the American people. Yeah. But I'm at the time man, right? there was a concern. They were, uh, people were saying there is no such thing as the American people. We have the people of Massachusetts, the people of South Carolina, um, you know, the, the, the people of Virginia, we don't have a single blob of the American people. We don't want there to be one guy yeah. who thinks that he rules over the whole American people.
1: Which, which is a fascinating headspace to get into. And it's so hard to even, it's hard for me to even really think that way now. Like uh, when, when I first read about, I think it's the, it's not the XYZ affair, but there's a early on, maybe I think it's in the Jefferson administration. There's an American citizen who just goes to England to negotiate on, uh, negotiate on behalf of America post-war um, something. I don't remember what it was, but he basically just deputizes himself and he's like, oh, I'll go over. And, and they they have to step in and go, look, you can't like, we can't just have some guy. You have to be an ambassador or a minister or something. But there, there was sort of a mindset of like, why? You know, why does this have to? There, 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 were, there was such a depreciation of the state itself and a, and a concept of uh, civil society being much, much larger and the state being sort of subordinate to it. Whereas now, I, I think we—that's just part and parcel—is you know we're all part of that. I also, I, I also, I'm beginning to think that there is a sort of um, weird hanger-on from divine right rule that we have. Gradually intuited in a democracy, and I like democracy, by the way. Uh, and, and as soon as the separatists have been quelled, I will reinstate the republic and put down my my emperorship. But uh, no, with with, with um, divine right rule, uh, I look at it like um, I, I kind of view the government as a like a corporation that we have we've have given certain powers to. It's a it's a big corporation. We've given a, a monopoly of taxation and violence to it. But I, I don't view it as having any type of sanctified state. There's nothing um, that has spiritually cleansed it uh and given it superpowers whereas uh if you're a divine right ruleist or a divine right royalist um the king has been appointed by god and i almost feel like democracy has that cleansing effect on government rule where it's like well no because it's democracy therefore this is this is spiritually okay for us to do this and I, i'm like you know i'm i'm i like the democracy i want to keep it i don't know that it it automatically becomes um you know morally permissible where uh, where it has some sort of some sort of supernatural identity separate than what I would view as a corporation. that's a better way of putting it
0: I think it was uh, Herbert Spencer who a uh, nineteenth century figure everybody's been taught to hate
1: oh yeah the was, uh, the the social Darwinist and and the, the font of all evils they're they're with
0: right and it turns out this is not really true about him but um but that was his concern I mean, his concern was that it, the problem he says is this idea that we should have this infallible voice that has plenary power over the lives and property of everybody in society. I don't care if that's one person or 500 people. Mm-hmm. This, this is beside the point. Uh, like, and so in other words, yeah, the fact that we vote or we vote for 500 representatives and they're going to make the decisions, the, the fundamental principle is the same.
1: So um, we'll. I'll, I'll, I'm slowly going to wind this down because I, I know you're a busy man and I don't want to keep you too long. However, Um, a couple of people worth bringing up when we're talking about uh, spontaneous order, emergent order. Uh, I am new to him, but Adam Ferguson, who is part of the Scottish Enlightenment, like David Hume mentioned earlier, um, Adam Ferguson, I think, is the first one to kind of coin the term spontaneous order, or at least describe it, uh, which he says, the result of human action, uh, or he says spontaneous order is the result of human action, but not necessarily the execution of any human design. Uh, And I'm I'm paraphrasing. I I think I've got the quote wrong. Uh, But he kind of pops in. And then I think Adam Smith... Take, I, I hesitate to describe Adam Smith as a spontaneous order. I think everybody brings up the invisible hand, but I feel like the invisible hand is more a description of a net good resulting from self-interest than it is of uh, organizational principles.
0: But yet when we, we put all these ideas of the Scottish Enlightenment together, we still get something that's pretty extraordinary. And again, it's, it's just as we were saying at the very beginning. We're surrounded by order out of liberty every single day but we don't, we don't notice it. And to me, the thing that actually got me on board was an economic insight. And when I learned it, 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 I instantly realized that the economy does indeed run itself. And it was just simply this, just is simply the, the idea that let's say there's a huge increase in demand for, uh, you know, ordinary pencils. So what's that going to mean? It's going to mean people, uh, realize that, okay, there's an increased demand. I can make some money satisfying this demand. So you get more pencil factories, let's say. But as that, but you can't infinitely create pencil factories because then you're going to overdo it mm-hmm. and you'll barely be able to unload your inventory. Nobody's going to want that many. So there is some kind of, a, I hate to use the word equilibrium, but there is some kind of a level reached where you realize, all right, this many pencil factories is not enough. This is too many. This is the right amount. And the way we know that is that people stop being willing to buy the pencils at a level that's profitable. So you realize, okay, it's silly for me to make more pencils. And what society is saying is, if you were to make more pencils, you'd be wasting our resources because we'd rather have ballpoint pens now. Mm -hmm. And so when profits go low or become negative and become losses, you don't need anybody with a bullhorn to say, okay, all you marginal pencil producers, time (laughs) to exit the industry. Uh, their bottom line will be quite sufficient to let them know they've got to exit the industry, whereas when they're making super-duper profits, you don't need a guy in a bullhorn saying, hey, big opportunity in pencils, everybody. Hop on over. People see the profits and they go into pencils. So in other words, that is how the economy regulates itself through profit. And, and so you don't need some fallible human being telling people, go pursue your self-interest. I'm pretty sure they'll do it on their own.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, so before I let you go, is there any particular person that follows this? We, we've got up to Adam Smith. So we've got up to the Scottish Enlightenment, which is a, a fascinating and wonderful time. Um, if, if Is there anybody post that that you really think is worth bringing up related to spontaneous order, be it Hayek, be it Bastiat, somebody like that, that made a huge contribution in terms of either promulgating it or refining the concept?
0: well uh, uh, there's uh, you mentioned hayek um, i don't know about this particular aspect of, of what i i think in the 20th century we got a lot of people who started writing case studies of here's an actual example of a spontaneous thing. like you know there've been interesting studies of how in prisoner of war camps how money spontaneously emerges in prisoner of war camps i mean in the under the most horrifying circumstances, you see spontaneous order developing. So there've been a lot of great case studies. Mm -hmm. To me, what is the other flip side of the spontaneous order is that there's mutual benefit all around too. We have both order and we have prosperity and mutual benefit. And that was one of the great insights of Frederick Bastiat. He had a great collection called Economic Harmonies. Just those two words, I'm such a dork, but those are two of my favorite (laughs) words. You just swoon when you hear that? Yeah, in economic – in fact, I think I even have a – heaven help me, I have a T-shirt with his face on that says economic harmonies on it that <laughs> we all benefit. I mean when when rich people make profits and they pour those profits into investment that – for example, my father was a forklift operator. I'm glad that the business had the money to pay for a forklift because my father could command a higher wage with the forklift. No way he was going to command that wage if he had to lift all those pallets with his bare hands. He couldn't even have done it much less commanded a wage. So it benefited him that the rich guy got that profit because now the forklift he bought with the profit makes my father's labor more productive and therefore he commands a higher wage. There are economic harmonies. There are things we should all want. We don't have to think about society as being a a low-intensity civil war of one group against another. So there's a kind of order there too, that we all want what makes – you know, what, what brings about prosperity are policies that we should all equally want. And, and to me, that's the flip side of the spontaneous order is that even here, I mean, yeah, we get a lot of cool miracles through spontaneous order, but we also get justice and we get prosperity through spontaneous order. Uh,
1: I, I think all of those are, are, are excellent points. Uh, is there with, with, with the idea, I, I liked your phrase, low level civil war uh, that, that I, that was kind of a turning point for me when I, when I discovered the economic concept of zero-sum game and the zero-sum game fallacy is there a particular thinker that that sort of espoused that or did that just kind of creep in uh, because th- that is very powerful if, if you think that there is a, 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 f- a fixed amount of resources and our job is is to apportion them as fairly as possible you you've missed the entire game and were that of course uh, that case we'd all be we, we'd be talking about how to redistribute caves and rocks uh, we you right. know the, the, the economy grows the the Uh, and, and, which is why a frequent thing, I come on the podcast at some point, I'm going to do an episode on inequality because people keep requesting it, but that's why I keep emphasizing. I'm concerned about poverty. I'm not concerned about inequality because is, is I I want that pie to grow. Is there anybody uh, that, that sort of is the, the patron saint of, of zero, sum fallacies? Uh,
0: the zero, well, I mean, of fighting them or originating them.
1: Uh, I'd say fighting them. I I think, I, I imagine that, that idea probably goes back very, very far in the past. I I think that's probably, there's a lot of inertia there.
0: Although, although Mises, the 20th century economist, called it uh, – he was talking about the, the French philosopher Montaigne who was uh, uh, in the 16th century. He was a French philosopher. He calls it the Montaigne fallacy. It's M-O-N-T-A-I-G-N-E. Mm-hmm. The idea that it's just a fixed pie, that that was – he gave that fallacy the name and named after that person. Uh, so Mises certainly – but Mises is very late. He's a 20th century figure. So, I mean, I, I would say Adam Smith – I think uh, understands th- about the creation of wealth. I mean, after all, he is talking about the wealth of nations and he is trying to also make clear to the mercantilists, because remember the mercantilists were completely of the zero-sum fallacy. Th- that was their whole trade philosophy yep. that it, it was, was based on if one country benefits, another country must lose. What Smith was trying to show is that there's mutual benefit and, and not just Smith, but others. That, I mean, that, his main target was the mercantilists who had a whole lot of cockamamie economic ideas. And in fact, we talked about Murray Rothbard earlier when he wrote his history of economic thought and he got to the mercantilists. By that point, he had talked about all different thinkers over the course of history. But when he got to the mercantilists, he said, you know what? I can't even dignify these people by calling them (laughs) a school of economics. They are just apologists for special privilege. Their economic ideas are total nonsense. They are just spinning rationalizations for policies that enrich certain people and i'm just going to come out and say that
1: yeah i i like that i don't think they need any slack uh and uh yeah and i will we'll we'll end up on in this romp across the enlightenment we'll end up on adam smith then and i i think um I, the, just to, to to put a hat on it he i think he's got what what is the quote that the um the, the grocer does not feed you out of altruism, but out of self-interest or something like that. This, this concept that you can have a society composed of people. I don't want to say selfish uh, just because we, we get into a whole uh, linguistic argument discussion. But the idea that, that everybody is operating out of self-interest, there can still be a net good and a net positive that comes out of that, uh, which is also a hugely powerful concept.
0: Absolutely. So, well, uh,
1: Tom, uh, I have had a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I, uh, I feel like I should have drank more coffee to keep up with you. Uh, and uh, I'm trying
0: to keep up with you. You're a tough guy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you in any capacity, but I am thrilled that I got to nerd out and just talk to you about economics and history. Thank you so much. Uh, and, uh, do you have any projects you're working on right now or you want to make a pitch for your podcast or anything like that?
0: Well, um, I would say, well, uh, yeah, let me, I'll, I'll make, I'll make one pitch. Um, I talk an awful lot about the Federal Reserve, which has caused a lot of economic problems. So I just released a free ebook called Our Enemy, the Fed. So I bought, I'm the king of domain names. I bought (laughs) OurEnemyTheFed.com. So I would recommend people, go if you don't know what the Fed is, but you have the funny feeling you probably ought to, uh, this is all, I'll I'll get you up to speed in one afternoon uh, at OurEnemyTheFed.com.
1: Wonderful. Well, Tom, again, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I hope to talk to you again soon.
0: Thanks, Andrew. All right, folks, as I leave you for the weekend, let me tell you that what I refer to as my sister podcast, Contra Krugman, which I record once a week with Bob Murphy, The Economist, this particular episode that's come out this week is number 175, ContraKrugman.com slash 175. This is another one, two in a row where we just took it up a notch. We just had so much fun doing this episode and the previous one. We've been recording them late at night for one reason or another, and for some reason, we just, I just laugh more. <laughs> we just have more fun when we do them late at night. So I hope you enjoy that over the weekend. If you've got some house chores, something you're driving around, and you're all out of Tom Wood Show episodes, check out Contra Krugman, and in particular, episode 175, because there, I mean, it, it doesn't even matter what the subject is. We just have a lot of fun. we got some good content in there, and it'll definitely keep you entertained. So check out ContraKrugman.com, and I'll see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.